take your Bibles and turn them to Mark chapter 1. As we are going to be reading verses 14 through 20. This is God's Word for us this morning. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and followed Him. This is God's Word for us this morning. Let's go to Him and ask for Him to bless it. Father, we need You, Holy Spirit, this morning to open our eyes so that we can behold wondrous things out of Your Word. God, will You give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ this morning? Um, Will You um, apply this passage to our hearts so that no one in this room will walk out the same. And God, actually, we, we know that no one in this room will walk out the same. God, you are going to soften some and harden others. This, this word will be ignored by some and they'll walk out a little bit harder. Um, and there's going to be some here who will listen to this word, submit to it, in faith believe it. And, and God, I pray that you can mold us into the image of your son in this moment through this word. Um, God, I pray for salvation to come to this room. Through the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God. Um, draw sinners to yourself. God, I pray that you guard us from error. You guard us from distraction. Um, you guard us um, from dismissing your Word this morning, God. Um, your Word is the highest authority in this room. We come to submit to it and to learn from you this morning. Um, so speak to us now, Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen. On September 26, 1983, there was a crisis. You may have never heard of this, but the entire world was at stake. Stanislav Petrov was a Russian officer in the Soviet Air Defense Forces. This was in the height of the Cold War, and Stanislav's job was to watch the radar and make sure that no nuclear bombs were coming from America to hit Russia. That's what he he was doing. He was watching the radar, watching for some nuclear bombs. And of course, the reason why he was watching was that if he saw the nukes headed towards Russia, Russia would then send their nukes our way. On that fateful night, September 26, 1983, Stanislav Petrov saw five missiles heading to Russia on his radar. Nuclear war had begun, an absolute crisis. In this crisis, Stanislav had to make a decision, and he decided 
not to alert his commanding officers about the five missiles that he saw on the radar. Why would he do this? Because Stanislav had the thought that if America was really going to nuke Russia, they would be sending more than five missiles. Something seemed off to him, so he waited and he waited and discovered he was right. It was a false alarm. The radar had malfunctioned. There was no missiles being sent from America. And since he waited, his decision saved nuclear war. Today's sermon is entitled, Christ is a Crisis. Christ is a Crisis. What is a crisis? A crisis is a time of trouble when an important decision must be made. Stanislav faced a crisis. He had to make a decision. And he decided, because no decision is a decision, to not tell his commanding officers. And that's what happened. But Christ brings a crisis in your life. Did you know that? Where you must make a decision about him. And this is a bigger crisis than Stanislaw faced because this crisis has to do with your eternal soul. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Christ is a crisis. Two points. The crisis of the kingdom in verses 14 through 15. And the crisis of the call in verses 16 through 20. So first we're going to look at the crisis of the kingdom. Verses 14 through 15. Let's read it again. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're going to talk more about this later, but as we see at the very beginning of this narrative, John has been arrested. John's fulfilled his role and he gets taken off stage. I think about Bugs Bunny, the comedian, and you know, the, the shepherd's crook gets on his neck and gets yanked off. You know what I'm talking about? Chelsea did at least. Okay, Steve gave me a thumbs up. I'll move on. It's kind of like that. John's out of the way. The forerunner's out of the way. He's done his job. And Jesus officially comes on to the scene in Mark 1, chapter 14 to begin his public ministry in Galilee. And what does Jesus do? He preaches. He proclaims. What does he preach? Look at the verse. He proclaims, proclaiming the gospel of God. And Mark explains what he means by the gospel of God in verse 15 where he sums up Jesus' message saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. First, in this verse, Jesus makes a huge claim. Think about this with me. The time is fulfilled. All the predictions from the prophets, all the hopes for a Messiah, all the expectations of the Old Testament fulfilled in this moment. Jesus is claiming that the most important thing in human history just happened. That the universe is now different. That nothing will ever be the same. Then Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't think about the kingdom as a geographical area like the the, the town limits of Louisville. But no, think about the kingdom as the rule and reign of God. Jesus is claiming that the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's come close. And the kingdom is at hand through the king himself, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is saying the kingdom is here through me, the king. And throughout the gospel of Mark, what we'll see is the effects of his kingdom. Demons cast out, diseases healed, sinners forgiven, death defeated. The kingdom of God being at hand should increase the urgency of the crisis for Jesus' hearers. Something's different happening. Something's changing. Things aren't just going to remain the same forever. So this crisis is heightened, if you will. Why? Because the kingdom of God brings salvation for the king's subjects, yes. But brings judgment for the king's enemies. So the kingdom coming is great news for the subjects of the kings, but not so great news for those who aren't right with God. So this is not something that you can put off preparing for the kingdom. This is not something that you can procrastinate because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is imminent. This is an emergency. It's a crisis. The king has arrived. The kingdom is near. And this leads to a crisis of decision where you cannot stay neutral. No decision about the king and the kingdom is a decision. And a foolish one at that. Jesus entering the scene here, coming around, preaching this message, brings a crisis into the hearers. You have to make a decision about Jesus' message here. And the one proper action in response to the coming kingdom, Jesus gives us in verse 15. It's one It's one. Move. It's one decision, but it's two sides of one coin. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's Jesus' command, call. That, that's the proper decision in light of the coming kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is repentance? To repent means to face the crisis of your own sinfulness before a holy God, knowing that judgment is coming. And instead of making excuses, instead of getting distracted, instead of moving on, you feel broken in your soul and you become disgusted with your sin. And you see truly, baby, for the first time that your sin deserves an eternity in hell. And so therefore, in light of what you've seen, you change your mind in such a decisive and genuine way that you actually change your life and forsake your sin. That's repentance. Once you thought sin was fine, but now you see sin as fatal. Once you saw sin as harmless, but now you see sin as hellbound. Once you saw sin as your friend, but now you see sin as your foe. Once you decided to live with sin, but now you've decided that you must put sin to death. That's repentance. I know we've been harping on repentance a lot lately, but the reason why we do it is because Jesus harped on repentance. That was His message, and it's going to be our message too, that you can't enter the kingdom of God without it. You can't come to Christ without it. There is no acceptance of Christ without rejection of sin. Notice here, it's not just repentance. He doesn't just say repent, but He says repent and 
believe. You can't just turn from your sin. You can't just reject sin. But you must reject sin and accept something else. You have to turn from sin and turn to Christ. To believe means to accept as true. But it also means to trust in, to depend on. So to believe in Jesus, to believe in the gospel, means to accept that Jesus Christ really is who He says He is. But it also means to personally trust in Him for your salvation. To count on Him for your eternity. That's what belief means. So for instance, in 2012, which is I guess about 11 years ago, I went on a trip to India. Okay, to, to go to India, you have to take two flights of about like 12, 13 hours. Really, really, truly miserable stuff, right? Uh, I've had to fly to Germany, then you had to go from Germany to Chennai. To get to India, I, yes, had to mentally accept the truth that airplanes actually exist. Yes, I did. And I do. I truly believe airplanes exist. But to really believe in airplanes and have that benefit me at all, I have to actually get on the thing, buckle in, and take the trip to India. Does that make sense? An intellectual belief in planes versus a belief in planes that will benefit me in some way? Simply accepting planes exist wouldn't get me to India, just like simply accepting Jesus' existence won't get me into heaven. You have to get on the plane. You have to trust in Jesus for your salvation. You have to believe in the gospel. Depend on the gospel. Count on Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' one thing he says to prepare for this crisis. It's really two things, repentance and belief. How do we apply this to our lives today, 2023, here at Beach Grove Baptist Church? The sermon that Jesus preached on his first day of ministry is the exact same message that faithful ministers of the gospel preach today. Repent and believe in the gospel. So first I want to ask you, every single person in this room, have you felt your sins and forsaken them? Have you felt the crisis of your sinfulness before a holy God? Have you accepted the truth of Jesus Christ's virgin birth, sinless life, death on the cross for your sins, and physical resurrection from the dead? But not only that, have you personally trusted in Him to save you and forgive you of your sins, submitting to Him as Lord of your life? Have you done that this morning? Have you heeded Jesus' call? Because listen, you can be so smart. So rich and so healthy, so great in this world, so good to people, so heroic, and still go straight to hell. You must be born again. You must repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? But also, both of these verbs are in the present imperative which implies that these are not just both one-time decisions. It's not just you repent once and you believe once and then you're done with that. 
But these, these verbs imply that repentance and belief should be done over and over and over again. Not getting saved again. You, you get saved at that very first time. But ever, once you get saved, your life should be marked and characterized by these two things. These two sides of the same coin. Repentance and belief. So this includes the believers in this room. I'm not, this isn't just a sermon for lost people. Okay, this is talking about you. Is your life marked by repentance? Is your life marked by belief? Is this something that happens over and over and over in your life? Because Luke 9, 23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So for the people in the room who have been Christians for 20, 30, 40 years... When's the last time you were confronted with the Word of God and changed your mind in such a way that it changed your life? This is what we are called to do daily, is to repent. Are you growing in your faith in Jesus Christ? Is your life characterized more and more and more by repentance and belief? That's what following Jesus looks like. And we'll see it in our next point, the crisis of the call. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Jesus has just announced the turning point of history. He's just claimed that the entire universe has changed, that the kingdom of God is at hand. What would you expect to happen after that? Probably not this story. We see Jesus walking alone by the sea. He sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew. These are two fishermen. They would be rough men doing physical work, but also they would most likely be very shrewd, business-minded men. And Jesus looks at them and says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And what do they do? And immediately, there's that favorite word of Mark, by the way, euthus, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So then Jesus keeps on walking. We see the story. Does the same thing with two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Um, these would be fairly well-off fishermen. They have hired servants, as we see in verse 20. Um, they probably own their own fishing business, and so they're in their boat, minding their own business, mending their nets, getting ready for the next day, and they receive the call. See that in verse 20? Immediately he called them. This is the word kaleo, um, which mirrors the idea of salvation. It's, we are called as Christians, and so there's a picture here of call. And then what do they do? They immediately get up, leave their father, leave their nets, and go follow Jesus. What do I want you to see in this story? What can we learn from it? Number one, I want you to see the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Normally, just so you know historically, rabbis didn't call their own disciples. This didn't typically happen. They let their disciples come and apply themselves. So the rabbis weren't out 
fishing for men. They sat in the ivory tower, if you will, and let people come to them. I mean, that's how, think of college professors today, right? We don't have professors going out trying to get students. You, just, you have to go apply. You have to come to them. That's what typically happens. But here we see Jesus go out by the Sea of Galilee, find certain men, and call them himself. Jesus chose his disciples. The disciples didn't choose him. Also, rabbis typically didn't call disciples to follow them necessarily, but a certain school of thought or teaching. Notice this is not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't call them merely to a philosophy or a body of teaching or a certain lifestyle, even though it includes all of those, of course. But Jesus says in verse 17, follow me. Do you see the uniqueness of that? Not follow the philosophy of the Stoics, but follow me personally. Come after me. Forsake everything for me. This is radically different. This is a call to Jesus Christ himself. And I want you to see that's what Christianity is. It's Jesus. It's following Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. Yes, it comes with a lifestyle and a body of teaching and doctrine. I love all those things. But those follow after the person of Jesus Christ. Number two, I want you to see the authority of Jesus Christ in this story. Historically, we know from John 1 that these four men had prior um, exposure to Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. But Mark, in this narrative, wants to paint us a picture of Jesus' all-encompassing authority over the lives of these men. Do you see it in the story? That Jesus simply says, follow me, and they do it. They drop their jobs. They drop their families. They, they drop their routines and their possessions, their companies, all to follow and obey the call and command of this man, Jesus Christ. I mean, what kind of authority does this man have? Imagine someone coming into your workplace or your home and saying, quit your job, leave your family, and dedicate your life to me. And then imagine you obeying that man. Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And the disciples here are a good example for us to follow because a follower of Christ is someone who follows Christ by submitting to the authority of Christ. And I want to mention that this happens in every single area of life. With no exceptions. In the workplace, at our schools, in our politics, in our finances, in our sex lives, in the way we use the internet, in our families, in our thought lives, Christ's authority reigns supreme. And you see that in this story where Jesus says, drop everything, follow me, and the disciples do it. Number three, I want you to see the worth of Jesus Christ. These four men were not being foolish. But they are an example for us to follow. Indeed, what we see these four men do in this story is the essence of wisdom, is it not? To forsake money 
to forsake worldly security, to forsake family, to follow Christ. This is wisdom. They were, they were confronted with a crisis and they made the right choice to drop everything and to follow this man, to give their lives for this man. It reminds me of the parable of the hidden treasure, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You see how in that parable there's a sacrifice, but the sacrifice is nothing compared to what's being gained? Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer you. He offers more pleasure and more security and more love and more joy and more peace and more satisfaction and more wisdom and more life. Choosing Jesus is simply the logical choice in the crisis due to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and the abundant life that He offers. This is wisdom. They're making the right choice. It reminds me, we'll read this later on in Mark, Mark 10, so we'll be there about 2025. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Please listen to me here. No, Jesus does not offer you a perfect life here on this planet. Yes, following Christ does lead to suffering and persecution and struggle and pain. These things need to be emphasized. It's important. But the Bible doesn't just say that. The Bible also promises that following Jesus is the best thing that you could ever possibly do. With more to gain, with more joy, with more love, with more life. Offered in the person of Jesus Christ. The logical thing to do is to drop everything in pursuit of Jesus. And the abundant worth and surpassing worth of knowing Him. Alright, finally I want you to see the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't just call them to follow Him. But Jesus is going to transform these men. He's going to equip them for a certain task. Look at verse 17. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The idea here is the kingdom of God is at hand. The crisis is here. Judgment day is coming. So it's time for everyone to repent and believe in the gospel. That's the only way to be saved from the wrath to come. But once you repent and believe in the gospel... Your task becomes to live so that others repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' plan is to take these four fishermen and disciple them and train them and build them up so that they can go out and proclaim the gospel themselves. Notice he doesn't immediately give them the task. He doesn't say, hey, here's this gospel track. Read it over. Go share it with your friends. No, he says, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. This is going to be a process. It's going to take time. And we see this play out through the gospel of Mark. 
What this reveals to us is that a core part, an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus is being a disciple maker for Jesus. So I want to ask, do you see that as part of your identity? I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Therefore, I'm a disciple maker for Jesus. And I am earnestly trying to make other followers of Jesus Christ. Being a disciple of Jesus means you are a disciple maker for Jesus. Therefore, being a follower of Jesus should transform your perspective when you go to the gym, go out to eat at restaurants, go to the grocery store, when you're at family functions, as you walk in your neighborhood. You need to view every single area of your life like you're on a fishing trip for Jesus. That's what we're called to be. And I want to encourage you to view yourself in this light as a fisher for men, which means to call people to repent and believe in the gospel. So these four men we meet in this passage, Simon, who gets a name change later on, by the way, to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, are a perfect picture of the proper response to Jesus' sermon in verses 14 through 15. Jesus preaches that sermon in verse 15, and then in the story that follows, I think we see a, a right response to the person and message of Jesus Christ. This is what repentance and belief looks like. They drop their old life, forsaking all to grab on to the person of Jesus Christ. So they're, they're an example for us in our following of Jesus. And I, I want to encourage you to adopt them as models in your life. To, to look at this story and say, how can I be more like this? How can I forsake all to follow Christ? In conclusion... Christ is the crisis. We've seen it in this passage, the crisis of the kingdom, the crisis of the call. I hope if we, as we've studied this passage, you see the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the authority of Jesus Christ, the worth of Jesus Christ, and the mission of Jesus Christ. And if you have, then the crisis of Christ has come to you this morning. Right now, in this room. This is true whether you are in Christ or you are far from Christ. And remember that no decision is a decision. You can't sit here and remain neutral. Jesus is calling you even now through His Word to repent and believe in the Gospel. That's what He's calling you to do. I invite you to do that this morning. I plead with you to do that this morning. Because this truly is a crisis. Judgment day truly is coming. Wrath truly is coming. Your soul, your eternity is at stake. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. But come to Christ and live. Be like Simon and Andrew and John and James and change your life. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Believe in the gospel. He'll forgive you of your sins, give you eternal life, adopt you into his family, give you a new purpose. That's what's offered in the gospel. I promise you that Jesus Christ offers abundant life.
Let's pray this morning in your name, Jesus. I pray every single heart, believer, non-believer in this room, will hear your call this morning to repent and believe in the gospel. God, we need to repent every day. All of life is repentance. God, we need to put our faith in you every day to grow in our dependent trust upon you. Holy Spirit, will you work that in us, Lord? Will you change our hearts? God, will you push us to look a little bit more like these four disciples here? Jesus, we praise you for your uniqueness and your authority and your your mission, God, and your worth, Jesus. Knowing that this is logical what we saw these men do. And God, I pray for anybody in here who's far from you, who doesn't know you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will draw them to yourself. God, I pray that they, they, they won't leave this campus without talking to somebody about the eternal nature of their souls and, and how to receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. God, we thank you for this time. God, I pray that your word produces fruit in our lives. In your name, Jesus. Amen.